In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And there was water, and the sky, and the land, and the seas, and vegetation, and the stars, and the moon, and God saw that it was all good. And there were swarms of living creatures, and God saw that it was good. Creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them all. God saw everything that he'd made, and indeed it was very good. Word of God, word of life. Thanks be to God. In Professor Walter Brueggemann's book, A Gospel of Hope, he says, and I'm going to paraphrase, we in our society and in our churches are tempted to monologue. The image for me here is a comedian that stands and tells jokes all alone at a crowd, a studio audience, whatever. Brueggemann is saying that a monologue is how churches are tempted to talk as one voice at everybody else. He says, such temptation imagines complete certainty and assumes that any one of us can by ourselves speak with the voice and authority of God. That, he says, is idolatry. He says, in churches, judgments are made and then positions taken that sound absolutely certain without any sense that God's life in this world is dialogical. Like if monological is one voice at everyone else, dialogical is a conversation, right? A dialogue is ongoing conversation. And Brueggemann believes, Bible scholar as he is, probably as respected a Bible scholar as is currently alive, he believes God is not a monologuer talking at the world with absolutes, but desires dialogue with us. Why would Brueggemann think that? Like, where's he getting that, you might wonder? Well, in that Genesis text we heard for today, God calls creation into obedient unity. So life can be experienced in abundance. That's the original idea for creation. The world is not called to be chaos or broken or in conflict. Everything's created to be good. And on the sixth day, when God looks at all of it, God says, nah, it's very good. God creates all the very good by speaking it. Creation's task is to listen to what God speaks and then respond. That's how creation works. It's a dialogue. 
but it doesn't work right away because creation isn't listening. By Genesis chapter 11, humanity is described at its low point, not notably as sinners or that creation had gone bad, but that creation had become loshima, which means they didn't listen. Go ahead and do that with me. Loshima. Loshima. They did not listen. The caller God is still calling. The creator is still speaking. But the creation, Loshima. They did not listen. So again, creation hasn't fallen, as we typically say, or become bad. The thing God's trying to work through is this Loshima. So does God force them? God's love and mercy and grace on this Loshima world in a monologue way? Speaking at? No. God creates some more by speaking with in ways that finally do get heard. By whom, you might wonder? Well, by Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 12, God begins a reformation of creation. God wasn't done creating in Genesis 1, With Abraham and Sarah, God creates some more by calling them into a promised future. They, barren as they are, no kids, and not as young as they once were, are promised descendants more numerous than the stars, land, and that through them the whole world's going to be blessed. The whole creation, God is speaking, will be recreated in the future. Now, again, God is not forcing God's promises on Abraham and Sarah any more than God forced obedient unity and abundant life on Adam and Eve. This is not a monologue God. This is a dialogue God. And what makes the Abraham and Sarah story so amazing is that this is when we see God's creation work. Abraham is not Loshima, but instead embraces God's call in a way we call faith. Faith is born, created between God and Abraham through their dialogue. And once faith is created with Abraham, faith becomes the way that God continues to recreate throughout the generations, many generations of the descendants of Abraham. God speaks, Isaac listens in faith, the faith of Abraham, born there. God speaks, and Jacob listens, and Ruth, and Obed, and his son Jesse, and his son King David. Did all of them always Shema? No. There was some low Shema going on more often than was perfect, but God persisted in speaking and recreating and remained in dialogue, navigating the faithful times and the faithless times, always with abundant mercy and steadfast love. And then, that third promise made to Abraham, the promise that the whole world was going to be blessed through Abraham's descendants, is fulfilled. If faith is to listen, Jesus shows what it's like to have perfect pitch when it comes to listening to the recreating speaking of God. Listening in faith moves Jesus to teach the golden rule, 
to say things like, do not judge so that you may not be judged. It leads him to forgive sinners, value people the world said were worthless, heal the hearts and bodies of broken people. Faith born with Abraham and how Abraham responded, embraced that speaking of God. Faith imperfect for many generations, but an effective way for God to dialogue with many generations is then used by Jesus to persist in love all day, every day, all the time, all the way to death on a cross. God speaks, Jesus listens. Jesus responds all the way to death. God responds to that death with life, with resurrection. With Abraham, faith was born. With Jesus, new creation is born from faith. And in this new creation, with a risen Jesus as Lord, followers of Jesus are allowed into the perfect faith of Jesus. Baptism gives imperfect people access to the perfect faith of Jesus so that we can now live in that new creation. We, the church, can now persist in love all day, every day, all the time, all the way to whatever cross awaits us, knowing that crosses don't do much in this new creation. And what we see in the Bible is that right away, the church is called by God. God speaks some more to do some more new things. And there are two examples from the book of Acts that in my 20 years of ordained ministry have opened my ears and my heart most effectively. Acts 8 is the first one. God calls Philip to go to a certain spot on a road in the middle of nowhere. And when he gets there, there's a eunuch from Ethiopia. So in the 21st century, we've got lots of categories for sexual orientation and gender identity and gender expression. Well, in biblical times, a eunuch stands in for a lot of what the LGBTQIA plus community receives from the world now. See, the prophet Ezekiel, he had a whole section about who is to be excluded from God's sanctuary, the house of God. Why did Ezekiel have this whole section? Well, because the law in Deuteronomy does. And in that original list, Deuteronomy clearly states, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. I know it's early. <laughs> I know it's church. But saying the explicitness of those words is important. Trust me. That was the law. And so lots of people today quote Deuteronomy 23.1 when they want to exclude transgender people, for example. But it turns out this eunuch issue offers us one of the clearest examples of how our God is not a monologuer talking at us, but desires dialogue. Many years later, Isaiah, a prophet of God, says, and do not let the eunuch, and do we all understand a eunuch is assigned male at birth and then is castrated in order to serve oftentimes royalty or very important people? Anyway, Isaiah says, for thus says the Lord, 
To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Pun intended? <laughs> Maybe. The Bible can do that, actually. Be clever like that. So the eunuch is reading this Isaiah text, the Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading this text from Isaiah from the Old Testament of the Bible, and he asks Philip, who's been called to this spot by the Holy Spirit, so what's to keep me from being baptized? This is the crucial question. This is when I moved down. In what circumstance would I or you have something in mind that should keep our church from baptizing someone? Is there anything? Can someone be too young to be baptized? Too old? Too neuroatypical? Can somebody be not smart enough? Is there a handicap that the church should be looking for? Should the church refuse baptism to someone because they are Native American? Can any skin color be the thing? How about their sexual orientation? How about their gender identity or their gender expression? What's the thing? This story of the Ethiopian eunuch takes the most extreme example of its time. This person has an outsider ethnicity, an outsider skin color, speaks a different language, serves a different nation, and as a eunuch, doesn't have a male or female gender. And this human, whom God created as very good, looks into the eyes of Philip and asks, what's to keep me from being baptized? This would be the moment, wouldn't it? If there's going to be one, for Scripture to clearly state God doesn't want these kind of people in God's new creation family. This would be the place and the time for God to clearly help the church understand that our fellowship is for certain kinds of people with certain backgrounds and certain gifts. So what does Philip do? He commands the chariot that they're in to stop. He takes the eunuch down to like a puddle or something, a not-so-special body of water, and calls, speaks, something on behalf of God calls this human created by God, this very good, into the new creation where God is doing new things like resurrection and a lot more. Two chapters later, we come to the second story that's opened my ears and my heart to God's recreating call in my own time and my own life Peter, a very orthodox Jew who follows the law, is praying on a rooftop when he's given a vision. Acts says, he saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures, reptiles and birds of the air, which if you're Jewish like Peter, you'd know. These are the animals you cannot eat. You've never eaten any of them because the law clearly calls them unclean. So Peter hears a voice. And the voice is saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter, and remember, this is the same guy who told Jesus, Jesus, you can't die on a cross. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. 
Peter also famously didn't want Jesus to wash his feet until he understood, oh, well, don't just wash the feet, wash, <laughs> wash everything. Well, in this vision, Peter responds to this voice and he says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything profane or unclean. And that recreating voice speaks it a second time and a third time. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. And then suddenly the whole thing was taken up into heaven and Peter was greatly puzzled. And that's when men from the house of Cornelius, a powerful Roman centurion, they come to collect Peter to bring him to Cornelius. The Spirit calls Peter to go with them. And in the faith of Jesus, Peter does. And when they meet there, there's a crowd gawking at this scene. Because this is quite a scene, right? A Gentile Roman soldier has had this Jewish disciple of Jesus. Jesus had just been crucified. Like, Jesus was a, a capital, you know, enemy. And he has this Peter person come into his presence, and here's the quote, to listen the reason that the Roman centurion brought him there was to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you, Peter, to say to me. A Roman soldier wants to hear what Peter has to say to him. And in the midst of all these Gentiles, Roman soldiers and the like, who all eat the wrong food, by the way, they've got the wrong background, they've never been included in the story of faith, Peter says, you all know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to even visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now, may I ask why you sent for me? And Cornelius explains that he was spoken to by the Spirit of God to bring Peter there. And Peter's like, oh, well, if God is speaking, recreating with you, well, then I must be in the right place, even though you're a Gentile. Peter says, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, those who fear and love him are acceptable to him. And while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word, and it says, the circumcised believers, that would that'd be the Christians who'd been born Jewish, who'd come with Peter, they were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on them, the Gentiles. And then Peter came to the same conclusion that Philip did. Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And that's when he baptizes them. People who ate food that had been unclean, people whose behaviors and traditions and perspectives and political ideologies were completely different from Peter's. They couldn't be much more different, right? Peter made sure they were all included in the faith of Jesus through baptism. And then what? Like, do we ever hear stories about how once baptized, these Gentiles, these Roman soldiers, had to have their Romanness prayed out of them so they could become more acceptable to the church that was very anti-Roman Empire? Did the Ethiopian, once baptized, 
have to sit on the sidelines of church leadership because, yeah, God loves you and you're included, but, I mean, you don't get to be a pastor or teach Sunday school. You don't have the right genitals. We don't hear any of those stories. And that brings me to our welcome statement. We welcome all. God delights in the beautiful diversity of humankind and unites us through the love, grace, and forgiveness of Jesus. We celebrate God's creation in all its forms and the inherent worth, dignity, and giftedness of people of all abilities, ages, cultures, classes, races, sexual orientations, gender identities, and expressions. That paragraph commits this church to nothing new except the new creation that God started in the faith of Jesus, that God called Philip into, that God called Peter into, that God called the church into 2,000 years ago. The story of the eunuch and Cornelius, those stories are how most, maybe all of us, got into this family of faith for ourselves. When we say God delights in the beautiful diversity of humankind, that's not a phrase for them, as though we at First Lutheran are rolling out some statement for the thems of this world. This welcome statement is first and foremost a declaration of what we have experienced for ourselves. We welcome all, yes, because God welcomed us. God delighted in us. Unique, Gentile us with all our quirks and deficiencies and gifts and beauty. We build community because the Holy Spirit first pulled us into Christian community. We serve our neighbor because Jesus served us as though we are neighbors, as though we are friends, as though we're family to him. And in baptism, we claim that we are. And once God pulls someone into God's family, the church, into the faith of Jesus, new creation keeps getting created. And that's where forgiveness happens. That's where love is offered without condition. That's where death loses every time. No matter a, a family member's abilities or age or culture or class, race, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression. Again, nothing new here except the new creation. God is continuing through us. And that's why, after this time of worship, our members are going to seek to endorse a welcome statement. That is the question I've heard most over the last couple of weeks. Like, most of us agree, we at First Lutheran are already doing a lot of this inclusion work, so why do we need to be, like, so out there with it? Well, first thing, for the sake of healing. For too long, too much of the church has actively ignored the radical good news of the book of Acts that clearly calls the church to broaden its welcome and deepen its inclusion of all. What if Philip had turned to the eunuch and said, Ew, I don't understand you or how you think. I don't understand why you think God would include you like God includes me. Your eunuchness makes me so uncomfortable. Ew. How would you feel if Philip had said that to you? Harmed at all? How would your relationship with God be helped or damaged from Philip rejecting you, judging you, excluding you? 
Or if Peter turned to Cornelius and called him a Roman pig, a Gentile, Jesus killer. There's no room in the faith of Jesus for the likes of you. The truth is that the church has said almost these exact things to the LGBTQIA plus community, to Native Americans, to people of color, to too many people for so long that a lot of people have been harmed. So how couldn't we? Why wouldn't we go out of our way to seek healing, to seek reconciliation with these beloved ones who we believe are created very good? Why wouldn't we want to do that? And yet most churches don't. And that's the second big reason that even though we're already doing a lot of this inclusion work, we need to put our radical welcome out there. Because most churches in Onalaska actively or quietly, but somehow still judge the LGBTQIA plus community as love the sin or hate the sin. Yes, welcome them in the doors, but only to change them once they're here as though they're not already good. Very good. But bad. Damned, of course. Because most churches boldly judge, we need to boldly pronounce grace and inclusion. Last thing. Why do we need to put this statement out there when we're already doing work of inclusion? Because it's good news. Like, really good news, especially for the people who get excluded from communities all the time. Good news is what the church does. It's the story we tell and the reason we're all here. I mean, the good news of God, including us in the faith of Jesus, is why 153 years ago, a bunch of Norwegian immigrants with not much founded this community in faith. It's why many of us give thousands of dollars a year to this institution. Good news is why we drag ourselves to this room on Sunday mornings on a beautiful spring day. That God includes is the whole point. So yeah, we want to shout that good news as loudly and as proudly as we can. The welcome statement is something, but I pray the result of this statement is that it shapes each of us to be a living embodiment of welcome to be as bold as Philip and Peter were, to hear the speaking of God and embrace that call, even when it may go against everything we thought we knew, maybe especially when it goes against everything we thought we knew. I pray this statement shapes our dialogue with God so that the faith of Jesus could carry on again for another generation through us. Through us. Amen.